Anyone in here work at that amusement park? Anyone? Looking for hands. Please, I really need to know if you work there or not. Anyone? No hands, okay? Am I missing? Good, now we can talk freely. <sighs> we can talk freely. Um, I know some of you visit that and you, you go there, but when you drive out of I-70 and you drive by the wild chipmunk, like, who rides that thing? Like, it's built with two-by-fours from 1920. It needs a paint job, like uh, thrill seekers. I, get, I am a person, I like to know a little safety. If I'm going to get on that roller coaster, I'm bringing an engineer with me, and he's going to show me why I should ride that or not ride it. I'm taking his word for it. The other assurance freaks about safety and things of that nature, that's, that's just how I'm wired, and, and maybe you are too. And I, I just, I don't think I would ever ride the wild chipmunk. Good for you guys that are able to do that, but... When it comes to life, life is risky, right? We live in some pretty turbulent times. We live, it's always been turbulent, but it's just, I'm aware right now of how turbulent the times that we're in, the bad news that seems to just come forth over and over and over, and the things that happen in our world. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to just wonder what's really going on. But I believe that God's word for the church and for us as his followers, is good news. It's time not to shrink back. Whatever can be shaken will be shaken. But that's not us. In these times, our faith needs to rise. And our, our encouragement in the Lord, our encouragement in who we are in Christ needs to, to rise and not be afraid and to live in who God says that we are. And it's a time to, to, to trust God's faithfulness more than ever before for all of us. To be used, as we learned last week, to be used of God to spread the gospel throughout the world. So we're starting a brand new series today. If you're a guest with us, you came perfect timing. Starting something brand new today called I Am Convinced. As I was just reading the Bible for myself over the summer, I came across um, a couple verses where Paul says he's convinced of something. And I started doing just like my own little Bible study, and, and where did Paul say he was convinced in his letters in the New Testament? And I boiled it down to four that we're going to look at in the month of November. Things that Paul said he was convinced of, you and I need to be convinced of. We need to walk out of here with a fresh perspective about what the Scriptures teach about us, who God is, and be truly convinced. And so what we're going to talk about today is being convinced that we're loved. And you may think, well, I know I'm loved. Do you really? Are you living on a daily basis in the love, extravagant love, perfect love, unconditional love of God? Or do you depend a little bit more on your performance to think that God loves you? And I think God wants to free us up this morning to live in his love. Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, um, or Less Miserables is what it looks like, but Les Miserables, he said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we're loved. I agree. To know that you are loved unconditionally, to have that security that you don't have to earn God's love is something that, that we need. And so there's eight verses in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 that I'm going to read to you. And we're going to look at and then and see where Paul, what he was convinced about the love of Christ for us and how we can have that as well. It says... 
What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Paul had just been making some amazing statements in Romans 8 about no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that, that, that Jesus had freed us from the law of sin and death. And he's, he's now saying he's taking a little turn in, in the words, and he says, what should we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself, or he's justified us. Who then will condemn us? Again, no one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Here we go. And I am convinced. Say that with me. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. It's nothing. And you and I try to come up with some possibility of what could separate me from God's love, but it says it right there, nothing. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the word convinced, when he says, I'm convinced, there is a a Greek word. If you're new to the Bible, you're new to church, what we read in English had to be translated from Greek and Aramaic, the Old Testament in, in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek and Aramaic. So if you don't read Greek and Aramaic, we're at the mercy of a translator, right, to go into our language. Well, the original word, it's good to study original words sometimes because you get a little bit different angle of the meaning. And the word for convinced is the Greek word pitho. And that means to persuade, to assure, to make confident, free from fear and doubt. So the, the tense that Paul is using about this Greek word, pitho, of being convinced, it has two, two things, two tenses to it. One, that Paul has become convinced, and the other tense right there is also that he's going to stay convinced. So we know that when you study the life of Paul, that, that he, he had a revelation from Jesus. Like he saw the risen Christ and spent seven years downloaded with the gospel and truth and understanding And so he became convinced by revelation, but also through experience. If you don't know much about the Apostle Paul, he's probably maybe the most important figure, obviously, besides Jesus um, in Christianity because of how God used him. He was a persecutor of early Christians. He killed them. And he thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting Christians. And Paul called himself the chief of sinners in some of his letters because that wore on him. 
Did anybody see the movie, Paul the Apostle, that came out recently? That was, that was pretty good. And they do a good job of Paul's humanity and in, in still dealing, even though he was convinced about the love of Christ, he still struggled with what he had done when he had killed these, these Christians. And, and so Paul understood it by revelation and by experience that he was loved, he was per- persuaded. And in that definition, free from fear and doubt. I wonder today, if you're free from fear and doubt concerning the love of God for you. I know I I struggle. I have ups and downs. If I've had a good day or a good week in my mind, then, oh, he must love me. I'm a good boy. I have a bad week, bad thoughts, whatever. Uh, He must not love me. He can't love me. Anybody relate to that? Just me, right? You can relate to that. Being convinced of Christ's love conquers four of our biggest fears, I believe. I believe if... If we took a poll in this room this morning and we all wrote down what are our biggest fears in life right now concerning uh, our lives, we could probably narrow it down to these four things that I believe knowing and being convinced of the love of Christ just vanquishes those fears. Your fears will look so little compared to the love of Christ. And I think we're going to hit on that as we unpack this this morning. So why should you and I be convinced about God's love. It was right in the passages. You can write this first one down. Because God is for me. You can be convinced of God's love because he's for you. What shall we say about such wonderful things of these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? You realize God has no opponents, right? He, there's no, there's no one to compare him to. He has no equal. Uh, When uh, all our kids were little, I would teach them how to memorize the Bible and verses in the Bible. And I remember our, my oldest daughter, Chase, um, she, this was the very first verse she ever memorized was, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in her little two-and-a-half-year-old voice, it was, if God is for us, who be against to us? And it was adorable, still adorable. We, I still can hear that in my dad brain because I recorded her and would record them a lot. And she said, if God is for us, who be against us? And you know what? She believes that, that if God is for her, he has no opponents, bring it on, life. And she's an adventurer. Does she, does she, she faces her fears. She's, she's not superhuman, trust me, but she faces her fears. I believe the word of God changes us. And if you can get that, however old you are today, that if God's for you, who can be against you? What do you feel is opposing you today? I bet you, if you were to be honest, like, what is the opponent in your life? Is it guilt? Is it shame for something that you've done? Is it a sickness? Is it financial crisis? Lack of a job? Whatever it is, that feels like an opponent to you. That's intimidating you. If you remember, those of you that are old enough, back in the late 80s and, and through the mid-90s, there was this boxer named Mike Tyson. You've heard of Mike Tyson, right? Mike Tyson. He, uh, he talks kind of like that. The voice does not fit the body, trust me. But he, uh, Mike Tyson was bad, man. He was just the baddest man on the planet. He was this young guy, and he would, you know, just come out. Most of his fights didn't even last 20 seconds. Like, he would, he would come out, boom, guy gone, you know? And it was like, Mike, no one could, he had no opponents. No one could beat him. I remember I was really into the boxing game back then, and I, 
I remember Mike Tyson, it would, somebody would be his opponent and they'd be introducing, you know, in this corner, you know, Joe Schmo and Joe Schmo would be like, do I really have to do this? Like, his eyes scared. Like, I got to fight him. Like, he probably had a change of underwear with him because Mike Tyson would hit people so hard, you never know what could happen. And he would scare the daylights out of people. And people would go to fight Mike Tyson and they would like either run around and he'd have to chase him down and finally get tired of chasing him and just be like, come on over, you know, hit me first or whatever. But I remember guys would just come in, they would like, like little kids on the playground, throw haymakers and Mike would just stab, boom, gone. But one day he fought a guy named Buster Douglas and Buster Douglas knocked him into next Tuesday. And he realized he actually did have an opponent, that he wasn't the baddest man on the planet. And his career basically took a turn after that. So even Mike Tyson, like, he could be in your corner, but he even has opponents that could beat him. Remember in the first Avengers? I love the first Avengers. Loki is this little demigod from another world or whatever, and he's mad because people won't bow down to him and, and all that. And he actually comes to the Hulk He's all green and mean and mad. And he comes to the Hulk, you will bow down to me. I'm sick of you people not, you know, bowing down to me. And Hulk grabs him, throws him to the ground. He's like, oh, and he goes, puny God, you know. Everybody's puny God upside of our God. He has no opponents. Get that through our hearts. So if God is for you, who can be against you? This conquers my fear of opposition. Whatever those opponents that you have lined up in your mind today of guilt and shame, difficulties, finances, God has no opponent. He's on the job. He's, he, he, he is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Second thing, reason that we can be convinced of the love of God that's found in Christ is because God has promised to not withhold any good from me. He's promised to not withhold any good from you and I. Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Man, that is so important. Again, a quick Greek lesson. Uh, the, the, the Greek word for gave him up for us all is the same word in the Gospels that's translated when Judas Iscariot, uh, you know, handed Jesus over, so to speak, to the authorities, when he sold Jesus out for the 30 pieces of silver, he gave him up. It's the same Greek word. But we have to always remember that Judas didn't crucify Jesus. The Jews didn't crucify Jesus. The Romans didn't crucify Jesus. Our heavenly father in eternity past made a covenant with his son that he would give him up for you and I, that whoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. Where do you need provision in your life today? I wonder where, if you were to look at your life, is it, I mean, there always could be more money, right? There could always be all of that. But where do you really feel like maybe you lack provision? Because you need to know that our Father's not going to withhold any good from you. If you just look at the cross and you look that he was willing to give his son, everything else is secondary. John Stott in the book, The Cross of Christ, said the cross is a guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. I love that. That's so true. I, and I want to convince you of something this morning. I, hopefully I can. 
your greatest need is not money or material things or food or even anything. It's forgiveness. My greatest need as a human being is forgiveness from my heavenly Father who is perfect and holy, whom by my selfishness and sinfulness have offended. I need forgiveness from a holy God, but the beautiful part of the holiness of God comes right alongside with the love and mercy that he extends through the person and work of of Jesus and what he did for us. So if he took care of our greatest need by giving us Jesus, you can count on all the lesser needs being met and just trust him. He's not going to give us all our wants, but he's going to meet all your needs. This conquers my fear of lack of provision. Conquers my fear of lack of provision. The third reason that you and I from this passage can be convinced of the love of Christ, that we are loved, is because God has forgiven me and he will not condemn me. He's forgiven me and will not condemn me. Guys, I need to hear that. I need to be reminded of that. How many relate? We need to be reminded. When you realize that what God did for you in the person of Christ and that he has forgiven and he's not going to condemn us. Like when I think about the worst things I've done in my life, there's plenty, right? And that's not to stir up old home movies or condemnation from the enemy about something that's already been dealt with. But it creeps up sometimes, right? And that shame and it's like, wait, he's already forgiven me and he's promised not to condemn me. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one gave us Christ. No one can condemn us because he gave us Jesus. Now, what Paul's talking about here, especially up to in, throughout the book of Romans chapters 3 through 8, is about justification. Justification might be the most important word you'll ever learn in Christianity. If you do not know what the word justifies or justification means, you need to understand that. That's why you hear me preach it and teach it over and over and over again, because we forget. Um, Justification is the gospel. If you wanted to summarize the gospel, it's the, the, the truth of justification. And it means this, literally, that when you and I put our faith in Christ, that he lived a perfect life, died a brutal death, and rose again from the grave, when you and I put our trust in that, we build our life on that, we are justified before God. We are made right with God. We are in right standing with God. We are reconciled to God. But Scott, wait, I still sin, and so do you. Uh Uh-huh. It is God declares you and I holy and not guilty. That is the heart of the gospel. Because of Jesus, it has nothing to do with you and I what we've done or not done. You can't perform for God to get him to love you. You can't perform for God to get him to forgive you. It's the cross and the cross alone and what he did. And he justifies us. He declares us perfect in his sight. And in this life, it's still while we're in this sinning state, this ability to sin. In the life to come, there won't be any sin in heaven. But in this life, we're still working through this. That's the process of sanctification. Here's the deal. Most Christians don't live in justification. We live in this sense of probation. Anybody that's ever broken the law and been on probation, it's, 
hey, we won't charge you with this, with this charge, but keep your nose clean for a year or, five, or, or up to five years, and then those charges will be completely dropped. But you have this period of time that you got to be a good boy or a good girl. And, you know, people who are under, like, house arrest, they wear an ankle bracelet, or maybe it's, uh, you know, live in a halfway house or something like that. That's probation. you got to know that God has completely justified us. We are free. We're in his family. We are treated as sons and daughters because of justification. Don't live in this sense of probation. Oh, I've had a pretty good week, so God's not going to, he's not mad at me. Or, man, I had a bad week, he's coming to get me. That's usually the experience I talk to people about. And maybe that's you today. If God has said not guilty, then who can accuse us? Now, that seems scandalous, right? That seems like that's too good. But Scott, what about? Scott, what about? And you could fill in the blank. Yeah, that means we're actually preaching the gospel. If you say, yeah, but are you saying that I could or what? Yeah, that means the gospel is actually being preached in its purest form. Jesus died for me. Jesus lives for me. Jesus sits at the right hand of God for me. Jesus intercedes for me. That's who he is for us. This conquers my fear of accusation and condemnation. To be condemned is to be guilty, take them away. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But let me tell you, this is important. When you and I fail or sin, there's going to be consequences. Consequences do not equal condemnation. For us, when you, when you sin, there's going to be consequences. We have to accept that, right? But, but, but consequences do not equal condemnation. If you did something wrong and you feel shame, that, the shame should drive you back to Jesus, should drive you back to who you are in Christ. Romans 8, 28 says, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and been called according to his purpose. That even means your failures. If you will humble yourself and say, God, I blew it, will you work this somehow for good? That doesn't mean there's not going to be a consequence, whether it be relationally or financially or situation or whatever it is for what you've done wrong. The consequence actually drives you closer to God. You're free from accusation and condemnation. There's a tendency for us to base the love of God on feelings. If we feel close to God, then he must love me. Or my performance, have I done good? Have I been good enough? Or circumstances. But none of those are what we should base the love of God for us on. We should base it on the cross and the cross alone. Lastly, the last thing that helps you and I be convinced of, that we are loved is because he's promised never to leave me. Must never to leave us, you and I. That's what love does. Love walks through thick and thin, right? Love walks through the tough stuff of life with each other. When you go through difficulties or you've been betrayed or you've been fa- somebody's failed you or whatever it is, love says, you know what, I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm staying with you. I'm not going to leave you behind. And there is obviously, you know, boundaries and all of that. That's very important. But ultimately, God has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? 
Does it mean he no longer loves us if we go through this exhaustive list of difficulties and trials? Does it mean he doesn't love you because you're going through some suffering or you're going through some difficulty? He's saying no. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. You and I are not guaranteed immunity in life from suffering and trials. Following Jesus is not going to make all your problems go away. And a lot of people follow Jesus because they want him to make their problems go away or the consequences in this life go away. But that's not how it works. Following Jesus actually kind of messes up your life a little bit. And I mean that in a good way because there's there's a, a new way of living, a new way of trusting and building our lives on him. But he does, the promise of being his disciple is so worth everything that we go through. Jesus said, in this life, you're going to have trials, but take courage, I've overcome. So there's no immunity from that. This conquers my fear of abandonment. When you go through a difficulty, there's this fear that somehow God has left you, right? I see this from people all the time. They get, maybe they get cancer or they get this or they get that. Well, somehow God's mad at me or God's abandoned me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every disciple that walked close to Jesus suffered. They suffered persecution. I was reading in Acts chapter 12, and it made me think of this. In Acts chapter 12, persecution has broken out against the church. As a matter of fact, James, the the brother of the apostle John, was beheaded because he preached the gospel. Can you imagine that? He was killed because he said Jesus rose from the grave. Okay, you know, they off with his head. And that rocked the early church. It got Peter arrested. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is arrested. And Peter is in jail, and the church is praying fervently for Peter because he's awaiting potential execution the next day himself from King Herod. And interestingly, in verse 6 of Acts chapter 12, it says that Peter was asleep in between two soldiers. Soldier here, soldier here, and he was sawing logs in between. How in the world could Peter, knowing that potentially the next day he was going to lose his life, how could he sleep? I wouldn't be sleeping, would you? I'd be like thinking, life flashing before my eyes and coulda, shoulda, woulda, and all of this, and he's sleeping. You know why Peter was able to sleep? He was convinced. He was convinced that nothing could separate him from the love of God that was found in Christ. He was convinced that whether by death, whether by life, Christ be glorified. He was convinced to live was Christ and to die was great gain. That if Herod took his life, he was going to go be in the presence of the Lord. What are you going to do to me? So he was was out. And I was thinking about this for us. Those two soldiers maybe were the guys that were going to potentially behead Peter the next day. What represents those two soldiers in your life today? Is it guilt that's trying to hold you hostage? Shame, sin, a habit? Is it fear of a lack of finances? Is it, is it uh, you know, health crisis? What represents those soldiers for you right now in your life. I put up a card, very large postcard size card is what I could find, near on hopefully every chair. If, would everybody grab a piece of paper like this? There should be. And if you don't have one, 
tear it in half and give, give one to your neighbor if there's not enough. I want everyone to take this card. What I want you to do on this card is I want you to, want you to take a minute and I want you to write what represents something in your life that feels, like, is causing you maybe to wonder if God loves you. It feels like an opponent. It feels like those two soldiers intimidating you. Is it fear? Is it lack of provision? Is it guilt, shame? Whatever it is, I want you to write it on this card. Don't peek around on each other's cards. But I want you to do that. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together as a family. And when we take communion, I can't tell you a greater declaration of believing the love of Christ than to take the bread and take the cup together. Because when you take communion with the right heart, you're holding that bread and doing exactly what Jesus said. Eat this. This is my body which will be broken and beaten for you. And it was the next day. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. No longer the blood of bulls and lambs and all of that, but the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And he wants us to do this when we come together regularly so that we're reminded of his great love for you. The devil wants you to believe whatever you're writing down actually runs your life. That your lack of finances runs your life. Your shame runs your life. It doesn't run your life. Jesus, when you lay it at his feet and you release it to him, you can live in freedom. And I'm not standing up here trying to tell you I got it all together. I don't. But I want more. I want to know this love more and more. I've been walking with Christ for 26 years. I've barely scratched the surface of what it means to know the infinite, perfect love of God. I believe as you come to get the communion elements, you can drop this off in this basket up here. And when we're all done and we all grab your elements, go back to your seat, I'm going to take this before we take communion. I'm going to take it over to the foot of the cross as a physical reminder that Jesus paid it all. He took it. So Lord, as we approach the communion table this morning, help us to know you to know and experience your love by revelation, by your truth, by what you did for us. In Jesus' name.